Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories in In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you've done Good evening everybody and welcome to Stop Child Abuse Now Scan Radio show number 3138 and Stop Child Abuse Now is brought to you by NASCA, the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. I'm going to read the mission statement of NASCA. <clears throat> we have a single purpose at NASCA, to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, CSA. Presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. Two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. <clears throat> Tonight's special guest is Lynn Crook from Seattle, Washington, a survivor, an author, and an activist. Lynn's story is as fascinating as it is heartbreaking powerful and inspiring and perfect to share for NASCA family members in April, which marks both National Child Abuse Prevention Month and Sexual Assault Awareness Month. In 1991, Lynn sued her parents for damages after recovering memories of abuse by her father. Following a month-long trial in 1994, the judge ruled in her favor at a time when most popular press was telling us that adult accusations of childhood sexual abuse were false memories. Lynn is the author of False Memories, The Deception That Silenced Millions, which explores her personal story of surviving sexual abuse and focuses the lens on the harmful mindset that therapists can plant false memories into patients. 
her own experiences, recovering memories of childhood sexual abuse, sparked a lifelong mission to give voice back to those who were silenced. What's this all about? When states allowed adults who were molested as children to sue for damages, accused parents went on the defense. The parents claimed the accusation were false memories implanted by therapists. The parents established a nonprofit and invested millions in a PR campaign to promote themselves as falsely accused and to dismiss crimes committed against children as false memories. As evidence, they offered the story of an older brother who convinced his younger brother he was lost at a mall. The false memory story went viral. The popular press and psychology textbooks failed to challenge false memory claims. Individuals who challenged false memories were silenced. The author explains how her successful lawsuit against her parents helped her uncover the rest of the false memory story. Okay, and so Lynn Crook is our guest, and Lynn's book is available on Amazon. I'll say the name again. The book is False Memories, The Deception That Silenced Millions. And now I'll turn it over to you, Lynn. Oh, let me unhook you here. Hello, Lynn. Yes. Thank you for that hey, great you introduction. Are. You're welcome. Um, I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks. All right. My name is Lynn Murphy Crook, and I grew up in eastern Washington. I'm the oldest of six children. My father was a doctor. My mother was a nurse who stayed home. And we essentially appeared to be the perfect family. Um we were always kept clean. We got our clothes were clean. We got good grades. Uh, we were polite, um, and we were doing everything we can we could to uh, keep out the pretense of a of a perfect family. Um, I went to high school, got good, fairly good grades. I don't remember much of what went on inside the house. I could I could describe to you what the houses looked like inside. But uh, we lived in three or four different houses. I don't know what happened inside. My childhood is kind of like a quiet, shadowy time for me looking back. Um, high school, I, I did okay. Went to, I got to college, and from then on, my memories are colorful, and they have sounds. They're noisy, and they're fun. So I went to college, majored in French because... I wanted to be a spy, <laughs> and I thought it would be exciting. And I, looking back, I think the reason was that I knew my mom and dad had secrets, and I wanted to know what they were saying. Um, but instead of becoming a spy, I became a French teacher. And uh, I really liked high, high school kids, and so I got a master's degree in educational psychology. I taught French for two years, and that was great. And then I got married to someone I met in junior in middle school. We spent two years in Germany, so I learned some German. 
came back and no one was preparing food in in the US, in Seattle the way they did in Germany. So I started learning about cooking. Um, I took from some famous people. I um, had a cook, cook cooking class in my home. I wrote a cookbook, and then I just after that I did some food and wine demonstrations. I didn't know what to do after that, so I a friend of mine introduced me to the local sexual assault agency. So I got a job there, and I did um, community education, which was sort of like teaching French, and I uh, had had clients. Um, and the clients just that I had amazed me. They were children and adults, and I thought that they were so courageous. I just admired them so much. And I... Um, talked to the community. They seemed open to the idea of child sex abuse. And I I loved the job. It was the best job I'd ever had. And then I started having panic attacks at work. And I I thought something must be wrong. So I decided to um, take a trip to San Francisco with my husband. <laughs> and I thought that would fix it. Uh, I came back and I told my therapist, that I started seeing when I had the panic attacks, I started telling him, I'm just fine now. I'm really just fine. And he asked me for the first time some questions about my childhood. What was school like for me? What was family life like for me? And I said that we would um, sit around the table and my father would correct my table manners. And then casually I said, and my, fa- I, my father made me have, I can't say it even, even though my father made me stop having periods. And my therapist said, how? And I panicked because I thought he was going to think that my father molested me. So I couldn't move. I took some deep breaths. And then I said, well, my father was, is, was a bully. And I just, he just scared me so much, and I was nervous around him, and I eventually stopped having periods. And he said, oh, okay. And I didn't want him to think anything bad about me. So I went home that night, and I was standing at the sink. It was a dark night in February. I was standing at the sink, washing the dishes. The water was pouring down, and... All of a sudden, I was in the shower with my father, and he had pulled my hand up to his penis. And I thought, ah. And I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone what I remembered because I didn't want him to think I was molested. So uh, my husband says it was three months later. <laughs> but um, sometime later, I told my husband what I recalled, and I told I wanted to assure him that I was just fine. Um, I was going to take care of it. He didn't have to worry about me. I was just going to do fix it myself. And so I kept seeing a therapist, and I started remembering other things, and I thought, oh, crap. I was molested as a child. Um, and I didn't want to believe it, like most of us. I didn't want to believe it. And I told my therapist I, I didn't want to believe it. Um, and he asked me, what would make you think 
that you were molested? What would make you accept this? And I said, I didn't know. <laughs> but it was to think of it, if I could believe that it was okay if I was molested, that people were still going to talk to me. Because it was such an awful, embarrassing thing that he did. So I um, I talked to my siblings about it, and one of them remembered Dad molesting her. Um, and so I had that corroboration. Um, and then I, I started telling people, I started telling the public. Well, no, first, first I decided to sue my parents for damages. Um, some of my clients had uh, taken their taken their child molesters to court, so I thought, well, I could probably do that because I decided a crime was committed against me, and I would hold my father, my mother, accountable. See, I think that mothers are also accountable in family abuse situations because they know it's happening and they do nothing to stop it. My mother did nothing to stop it, I think, because she wanted to be a doctor's wife and live in a nice home. So that's called child trafficking. So she was a child trafficker, and my father was the molester. I um, I sued. I filed the lawsuit in 1991, and this was before the false memory days. And the, um, the story came out in the newspaper. It was a great story. Um, and then my community started saying, good job, Lynn. Congratulations. You're so brave. And I thought, well, I guess maybe this is okay. Um, they were, I got 70 sporty letters in, in the mail, and I still have those letters. Um, one of them even said, your father molested me, and... I'm not going to tell you who I am, but I support what you're doing. So I thought, okay, then for her, I'm glad that I'm doing this. Um, the trial, the trial, uh, it took about, excuse me, it took about three years for the trial to begin, and I honestly thought that my parents would settle. And I was kind of hoping they wouldn't. They didn't. Um because my father said in his deposition that he did not think it was sexual abuse if a father made his daughter touch his penis. And my attorney, um, my attorney and I thought, okay, they're going to offer to settle this week. But they didn't. Um, They kept going. And the trial date came and... um, I thought that I had everything I needed. Well, no, before the trial started, my, my husband said that I wasn't making, that I should make start making really good decisions, think through everything and make good decisions. And I started doing that. One of the things I did was to plan out the wardrobe that I was going to wear because that kind of kept me in the avenue of knowing, being familiar with, I, with what I was doing. Um, so my... Uh, trial date came, and I haven't talked about this in a while, um, and we sat down in the in the courtroom, and 
I glanced at my parents and they glanced at me and we never looked at each other again. We were just sitting right next to each other, but we never looked at each other. Um, the, the experts came to talk. Um, my parents' two experts were uh, Elizabeth Loftus and Richard Offshe. And we decided that Richard Offshe was probably a negative and uh, Loftus came across as 50-50. Um, probably was a good thing that hired her. Not a good thing that hired Richard Ashi though. And they hired um, uh, a guy who was an expert on horses because one thing I remembered was my dad made me stick my fist when I was, my tiny fist into the anus of a horse. And this, according to Loftus, was the most unbelievable memory on my list. And I didn't think it was it unbelievable at all because that was my father's, excuse me, favorite part of the body. So um, my experts testified, uh, my sisters testified, my brother did not, and then it was over. And the judge read his decision and I, my hopes kept going up and down as he read the decision. And then he finally said, I, um, Lynn, Crook is, Lynn Crook's accusations are valid. And he awarded me $149,000. Um, so I won. <laughs> and I think I must Yay! have been in shock for... <laughs> thank you. I think I must have been in shock for a couple of weeks. Um, and also, I didn't know what I was going to do now that I um, now that I held my parents accountable. What is there to do after you hold your parents accountable? I mean, no one tells you that. So um, I was thinking, I can't play bridge, and I I can't ride ponies, and I can't play golf. There must be something else for me to do. So um, I was reading one day Loftus's deposition and I came to a place where she said and then I dropped the first five subjects and I thought no way uh, I have a master's degree in psychology I know that you cannot drop subjects and I thought no it must be a mistake and I read it again and again I asked a couple of people could this be right and so then I confirmed it And what I did was read the honors paper of the student that she assigned to run the mole study. And there he said right in his paper that the first, the first, I can't remember, the first six subjects uh, didn't believe the mole study. They thought it was a false story. And so that's why they dropped the six subjects. So I thought, Okay, that's proof. Now, what do I do with this? Because I think I was I was the only one. Uh, I was the only. I I felt like I had I knew something that other people didn't know. Because once you drop five subjects or six subjects, no, it's six subjects. Um, you you've got to start all over again, or you got to, you've got to start a new research topic. But what she did was replace the subjects. It didn't help her, but she replaced them. Um, so 
I found a PhD who I enjoyed talking to her, and I asked her if she wanted to write a story about what Loftus did with the first subjects, and she said, sure. And I figured with a PhD helping me, it would it, it would turn out fine. So we went through. We I reviewed the, our what we did 18 times, and the, um, I'm proud of what we did. We published it in Ethics and Behavior, and I thought that when we published this, um, that the false memory campaign would come to an end, but that didn't happen. Um, yeah. What we did was. We what we did was we, I'm sorry this is confusing but we said in our paper that she didn't implant false memories in six of the 24 she planted false memories in five that was the deal yeah and so she was off by one so the study failed but we I still wondered about the uh, drop subjects um, so I started presenting at conferences I presented at about um, a total of I think 16 conferences so I got to know people in the field. And I was afraid that someone was going to stand up and yell at me. So I uh, I took a course in stand-up comedy improv. And then oh. I, <laughs> yeah, I thought that would protect me. No one ever stood up and yelled at me. And I, I uh, joined Toastmasters because I wanted to learn how to do a good job of pre- presenting an idea that no one was probably going to believe in. So um, so I kept going, I kept presenting, and not much happened. And I thought people, people, would, people would do something. People would stop her. People would write articles. People would stand up and say, Loftus, what you're saying is not true. And it's at that point that I found out that um, she actually, I, I found more data, and she only planted, oh, I know what I found. I found the um, report that she turned into the University of Washington when she was done, and there she said she implanted memories in two subjects. Okay? Oh. And I looked in those into, I investigated further, and both subjects I found, not both of them identified the lost animal story as false. So actually, she planted, implanted zero memories in the study, um, the false memory campaign had nothing, absolutely nothing to back it up. It was a hoax, I realized. So I decided to stop just telling data, and I told the whole story at a conference, ISSTD conference in 2019. I told the whole story in 20 minutes. I had 20 minutes, and they, st- they stood, and they, give me, they gave me a standing ovation. And I thought, oh. wow, okay, this made a difference. So I that night I uh, I decided that um, instead of just presenting data I would tell the story, and I would write a book and tell the story, and that's how the book started. Um, part of this is um, false memory. People get back at you by gaslighting you because they have no facts to counteract what you say. So. Um, I've counted. I, I've written them down. Loftus has, has gaslighted me three times that I know of. Um, a writer at Psychology Today gaslighted me. And if you know the Oprah Bakel who did the frontline story on Baltimore memories, she gaslighted me. 
So uh, if anyone is gaslighted, you can try what I tried, and that's I try to find a fabulous outfit that just totally fits the gaslight situation that they give you. So uh, the last one I got was dangerous and deceptive, and that was from Loftus. So I thought that I would wear black a black leather jacket and black pants, black boots, and a hat, some kind of hat and black gloves. And I thought that would look like dangerous and deceptive. So uh, if, if you are ever gaslighted, it can get to be kind of fun, I think. Um, okay, so the book's done. The book came out in August. Um, within about four months, I sold 300 copies, and I haven't asked since. Um, the sales are going really well. Uh, I'm getting some feedback. I got no negative feedback. I thought I would get negative feedback. I thought that all the false family people would come out and gaslight me altogether or something. But they haven't attacked me yet, but I still expect them to. Um, yeah, that's about it. Do you have any questions? Well, thank you, Lynn. Yes, I have. I wrote a lot of notes and things to ask about. Um, Good. But before I do that, I would like to um, introduce Dr. Nancy, who's our co-host tonight, and see if she has any questions or comments. Nancy? All right. Yes, thank you so much. So great to be on the show tonight. Um, wow. I mean, first, I just want to say, Ms. Lynn, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I know you oh. hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I know yeah. you hear it a lot. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I, part, there is a part two to this book, and this is what I found out about the false memory people, how they did what they did. So I just wanted to say there's more, but I thought I'd take a break. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm just. I'm still in. I'm just so proud of you. I'm. I'm really Thank proud you. of you. It takes a lot of courage to come forward and tell your story, especially as relates to it being your father and then having to face him. Um, I can relate, but I think you know definitely having to go through that whole trial. Um, it must have been very, very difficult. Um, I, I did have a question. Were yeah. your siblings um, abused as well, or was it just you that went through that? Oh, I don't talk about my siblings. Okay. okay. So their lives That's are private. If they want to share anything, then they share it themselves. Okay. That's fine. All right. Well, just again, we just want to thank you for being brave and for sharing your story. I'm sure thank you. our listeners. Our listeners are uh, definitely inspired by your story, and it just lets people know that they're not alone and they also can't come forward. Oh, no. No, you guys aren't alone. No, there's about 40 million of us adults who are more 40 million? Yeah, you have to do I know. It's inc- I don't, it's a number that's hard to believe. It's over 40 million, but if you take one in five girls and one in 11 boys, it comes out to over 11 million in the U.S. I mean, 40 million. Is in that the in the whole in the whole world? No. Or is that America? It's just in, that's America. Wow. Do the oh, math. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. We need to get together and take over. Is that many of us? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
things changed after the after the trial. Everyone was so supportive beforehand, but after the trial, they had about two years of the false memory campaign, and everybody, every single person I talked to said, "Oh, I heard about false memories like yours," or, "Oh, are you sure?" Because they didn't, they mm. stopped believing, as you know. Yeah. You know, my psychiatrist, psychologist, I mean, I wanted to do hypnosis, and he said, no, too many false memories. So I'm going to get your book and give it to him. Excellent. Because he doesn't know about the fraud. Uh, it isn't that easy to hypnotize someone into believing they, they were horribly molested as a child. It's just everybody thinks it's easy, but it's not. It's just not I was I, I, when I found out I was I was horrified and ashamed and embarrassed. It's uh, it's not like a, having a birthday party. It's it's not, it's not it's not easy to believe that you were molested as a child. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I remember feeling the shame. You know, it's even though the child did nothing, there's still so much shame. Like it's it's my fault. You know, I should have this, I should have that. Um, that right. was part of my my talking about it was dealing with that shame, and also that feeling. And I I know one person who totally had this reaction of like, oh my God, she has cooties because she was molested by her father. Did you ever oh, run into that? I, I mean, not literally inside. cooties, but yeah, oh, yeah. Sort of. I felt dirty inside. I just felt rotten inside because of what my father yeah. did. Yeah. And in fact, it was his. He was the one. Yeah. And it, it's kind of funny to think that I thought that what he did was horrifying and gross and scary, and he loved what he did. Um, oh. it, it just amazes me that someone could do that to a child, love it, and then the child hates it. There's so such different opinions, and the child has to do it. Otherwise, he threatens her into, mm-hmm. well, my father threatened me into saying that um, everyone would think I was crazy if I told anyone, because I did mm. remember it once. And I didn't want people to think I was crazy. Right. I remember my um, one a person in my family accused my dad, and and they yeah. they said to that person, "Oh, you're just crazy." That was oh. their response. Oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. 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 There are many ways to threaten a child. I, I right now I'm thinking of a couple things I didn't realize I was telling that whole story, and one of them was. My father actually taught me how to repress memories, how to dissociate, because when I, the time that I told, it got back to him. I don't remember who I told, but it got back to him, and he said that any time I think about it, that I should tell myself, forget it. So I started doing that, and pretty soon I didn't have to say forget it anymore. I just did it automatically. I don't know how long that took, but um, I didn't want people to think I was crazy. I had a reason. Hmm. I don't know how. 
how other how other kids dissociate what's happening to them but I also know that for me it was something I did not want to think about and it maybe that's that same thing for other kids they don't want to think about it and if someone tells you don't think about it you want to figure out how you can stop thinking about it because it's gross mm-hmm. I've asked people how they forgot and I haven't found anyone who's been able to explain how they did it um, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you how my experience with it. I think it's really yeah. interesting. I had a, a kind of a mental breakdown in the fifth grade. I had. A, I was very delusional. I had obsessive hand washing, and there was a lot of religion, in, religious delusion involved. And I was out of school for like a year, and my parents didn't get me any help. They just let me stay home, and eventually. It seemed to heal itself, and when it did, I had no memories of any of the abuse, even though it was going on while I was there at home. Um, it my my brain saved me, and as, as soon as it did, I went back to school. And in going to school, I had no memories of it. I did not remember until I was in my late forties, and someone else said, "You know, your father abused me," and that's when it came out for me. But, yeah, this, that's called dissociative amnesia, apparently. Yes. yes. And the weirdest thing to me was I could go to school in the morning and have a whole day at school then go home and be abused, you know, when I was littler, before the breakdown. And at school, I, I never, in my memory, I never thought about being an abused person or anything. It's it's like my brain literally shut that off when I left the house and went to school. So it's a handy thing if you're a kid and you have to forget bad stuff. It works really well. Okay, so uh, should I go into any more questions? I was going to see if Nancy had anything about about dissociative amnesia and that kind of thing. Did you know? Well, definitely, yes, definitely, and definitely I can relate. You know, I've, um, I've experienced it myself. It's definitely a way that our brain protects itself, you know, our body protecting itself from that type of trauma. And mm-hmm. um, and just um, like Ms. Glenn said, you know, uh, I'm sorry, no, uh, it wasn't Ms. Glenn. You, you made the comment saying that... Um, that you felt like your body just started healing itself, you know. Um, Annie, is, was that you that made that comment? Like you just oh, somebody made um, the comment. Uh, yeah, somebody made. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I did. <laughs> yeah, yes, did. <laughs> yeah, you made the comment that um, it felt like your body just started healing itself, and 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 that's what happens when you go through such a shocking, traumatic experience. I mean, some people go crazy. You know, some people really do go crazy. Some people take their lives. Um, and some people really, really, really fall down really hard, and they don't get back up. And so sometimes in order to protect ourselves, our body, our mind will have a, a fog. It will block out. It will have a blackout. Um, and I have experienced that many times. There's times that just something will just happen, and I'll just get a memory all of a sudden. 
but I haven't had a memory in years, right? Uh, and so, yes, our body does that as a way of protecting itself, and I have experienced it. So, yes, I can relate to that as well. I, I heard of a case early on. Um, she was about 14 or 16, and she recalled abuse by her a family member, and she ended up in the hospital with mono, and she died. And I thought it was just too early for her. She wasn't ready. Oh, I was 45 when I remembered. I was ready. Oh, yeah. Should I go I don't think I was ready. I was very upset. Yeah. I was going to say I was very upset when I remembered. (laughs) Yeah. I don't mean you're ready because it's very upsetting, but you're ready you have the strength to manage it now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's next? Should I go into uh, part two I'm now? Gonna... Okay. Okay. So part two is actually in the book. It's actually longer because the false memory people did so much stuff. And I'm going to give you a brief summary and then I'll go into a little bit more detail. Ask questions if you can, if you want. Okay, so um, basically in 1991 parents, accused parents were gathering and uh, Pam Fried was was the head of them and they were looking for some way to um, deal with accusations of child sex abuse. So Loftus Elizabeth Loftus came up with an idea for them. She, first, she uh, sent out um, debuted ideas to a couple of different newspapers, and then she, with the Washington Post, she tried implanted by therapists, and they headlined the story. So she gave, she told the parents, "This is yours. This is what you're going to go with." And so they started in 1992. They went public, and they they called themselves the Folk Memory Syndrome Foundation. And the reason that they were accused is not because they were child molesters, but because therapists were implanting memories in their children. Um, And then she did something else for them. She needed data to support false memories. So she ran the um, Lost in a Mall study. And that's where she, take, she took uh, 24 students, 24 subjects, and tried to convince them they were lost in a mall and to use stories that they were told came from their, an older relative. And basically, to, to condense several pages, um, they all, the, the study flopped. None of them recalled false memories of being lost. So... It didn't really matter because after that, what she did was to inflate the the research subjects. Uh, The data came out as, um, in psychiatric annals, it came out as, well, there's two actual, actually two results reported in the most studies. One is five, one is six. So let's go with the six because, I'll make this very quick, each, um, each subject was given four stories and since there were 24, they had to find six subjects to say they were lost in them all. They found zero. It didn't matter. She just inflated the results, and she did it for parents. And as what happened then was she could charge 
the parents, and eventually celebrities hundreds of dollars per hour to testify for them. So she, um, yeah, uh, yeah, up to six hundred dollars is the highest that I've heard. So they, um, their first newspaper report appeared in the New York Times and the Associated Press. And after that, the story went viral. It was a story we wanted to hear. And the story by 1995 ended up in 800 news publications. People believed it. Um, So actually, I looked into that. And once you hear something either three times or seven times, it depends on the researcher, you believe it. So um, people believed it because they were hearing it so many times. Because the first time you say, oh, that's interesting. Then you, then you say, oh, I think I heard that before. And then you mm-hmm. say, oh, that's true. I know that's true. I, I've heard that. That's true. So that's all they, that they had to do was to get lots of uh, newspapers, lots of story in lots of newspapers. They also did what they called rhetoric. They came up with some um, things that re, uh, that... This was then two reporters in in San Diego came out with 12 things that reporters could say to get people to believe the story. Um, Like, it's easy to implant false memory, uh, that sort of thing. And they repeated the rhetoric. Um, Loftus did approximately 300 presentations. She kept uh, doing... The research on memory, she became, eventually she was called the um, false, false memory, uh, the leader in false memory research, and she said yeah. was. Um, she is today, um, you still see it in, in the popular press, you still see false memory, and you see it in psychology textbooks. And psychology textbooks is kind of interesting because there have been a couple of surveys um, done which show that they they all say that memory is faulty and people's accusations of uh, childhood sexual abuse may be false. Um, and you hear that enough times. And the thing is, you have, what concerns me is that you have students who were, were molested as children. So you have a class of 150 are female. A quarter of those females were molested as kids, and you have them reading in their psychology textbooks that their memory is faulty, and their memory of getting molested as a child is probably false. So that quiets a lot of um, accusations that might have gone public, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Do you have any questions on that? Um, when when they had all of these stories running in other publications, did you have counter stories running? No. Or did anybody? We did, not. did anybody have any? They, nobody did anything to tell the other side, huh? A couple of people did and I'm trying to think of their names, a couple of people did. And let's see, there's some, yeah. There, um, 
and they were um, gaslighted, like Anna Salter did some stories, and um, she was gaslighted. So people who did that were gaslighted. Uh, David Kaloff mm. was gaslighted. Um, and if you see people who confront false memory claims and then you see what happens to them, you, you're not going to do it. Um, right. Guess, uh, David Kaloff was uh, also uh, picketed. He's gaslighted. They did all sorts of really bad stuff to him. So, yeah. So, no, there were hardly any people going up against the false memory people. But eventually what have, what they were doing, though, is to run studies showing that, um, showing the number, say, the number of people in, uh, let's say you have 100 people who um, were molested as a kid, you can do a survey and you find out that about a quarter of those people uh, recovered the memories. They didn't always remember. Uh, you could find... Uh, there, there was one study that showed that um, that accusations could be corroborated. There were a couple of those. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what the academic community did in response to 800 stories uh, telling us that uh, child sex abuse accusations are false. So that was a good question. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, then we have. Pam Fried, who led the led the parents, um, she came to various chapters. They, oh, they had chapters, yeah. They had chapters in the big cities. And people would gather and plan what they were going to do. Um, they had one in Seattle. And David Kaloff, for his newsletter, Treating Abuse Today, had someone go attend the meeting and write down what happened. Um, and she went two times, and the second time they followed, they were suspicious, they followed her out of the meeting, and they got her car license number, and they discovered who she was. They, they got her name. She didn't go anymore after that. Um Today, if I um, I don't know if you took a survey as to how many people believe, still believe in false memories, I think it would be probably more than half of the survey that you took, because not many people know that it was a fraud, because there was no research, there was no data to support it, and it's a fraud that's lasted 30 years. And I looked up the the Bernie Madoff pyramid scheme. Remember that? Where you got lots mm-hmm. of money from people? Uh, that one mm-hmm. lasted only 17 years. So this one has lasted 30 years, and it's doing really well. But I think that people are just starting to catch on. That um, people are starting to go public with uh, their stories. And... Yes. People are starting to write yes. articles. There was one in, um, I've got one right here, Therapy Today, and the title is Surviving the False Memory Wars. So people are coming out with with articles like this. So things are changing, 
but I think they're going to change pretty slowly, um, as far as I know. I'm thinking the more people write their own books and go out there and talk about it, the more we're going to be fighting against this false memory idea. People Actually, will see, yeah, no, they, I'm not making it up. Why would I make it up? It's so embarrassing and horrifying. Why would anyone make that up? Oh, oh, that's enough. You make it up for, they said, attention. It gets you attention. That's why you do it. That's what um, false memory people say. Because you weren't molested, so how you get attention? You just say you were molested. Um, get attention, huh? Seems like you could do something yeah. easier. Get a little attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you okay. win a competition, get attention that way, dude. We don't, we don't want, we don't want that kind of attention. So, but we'll go, go out and get it. It takes a lot of courage to tell people that you were molested as a child, but from what, from my experience, it's one of the key aspects of healing. When I can tell someone I was molested and they don't say, oh, I don't believe you, or whatever it is, it's very healing. And it was healing for me in 1991 when I told. And I shut up after the trial because no one believed me. Oh, really? Yeah. So after the trial, you didn't go around talking about it and and hanging out I with did. other survivors, and you did, you did. I did. I hung out with other survivors. I was going around talking about yeah. it, but people would say, "I don't believe you." I read about false memories. Uh, Are you making this yeah. up? Uh, people stopped believing. And before the trial, they believed me, and after, they didn't believe me, and I. And that's one of the things, one of the really bad things that um, the false memory people did was to make it difficult to tell. They uh, shut us up. They silenced us. And it wasn't them who silenced us. It was they gave our families and friends information to silence us with because they didn't have to believe us anymore. Yeah. Why did yeah, this no, woman do this? I mean, why would it occur to her to do this to people, to do this what, whole false memory thing? The one who planted the the therapist who planted memories in the beginning um, wasn't there someone who actually did it the first time? Maybe I heard wrong. Did what? Did what? Did, that I I thought there was a therapist who who experimented and actually did put. Memories into people? Was that the, the one about being lost at the mall? That, yeah, that's probably the one about being lost in the mall. And other people, other researchers have tried the same approach, but they all say that the older your older relative told me this happened. Hmm. And therapists can't say that. Yeah. Why um. would they... Um, like... Why would anyone do that? I don't know. I don't know why my father did it. Um, and I think if I ever had a chance to ask him, I wouldn't understand his answer. It would be so crazy to me. I don't know why my mother uh, protected him. I think that's because she wanted to keep things the same. She didn't want to go out and move out of, she didn't want to kick him out of the house. She wanted to think she, wanted, mm-hmm. she didn't want to be married to a child molester. She wanted to be married to a doctor. Right. 
Yeah. Right, it would threaten her entire lifestyle. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. I know my mother protected my father too, and uh, until before she died, she finally she came out and asked me about six months before she died. She said, "Did your father ever do bad things to you, something like that?" And you know what I said? I said no, because I couldn't deal with it. Even though I talked publicly about child abuse, I could not talk to my mother about it. I had to say, nope, nope, nope. Didn't want to, I don't know, I couldn't break that secret, you know, that barrier of keeping myself hidden. Interesting. I know that some people might say no because they didn't want to concern the mother. They didn't want to worry her. So for you, you just wanted to keep the secret. Huh. Yeah. I bet lots of people Dr. have different reasons for it. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Dr. Nancy, would you like to join in? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm just sitting here listening to you all, and I'm like, you know, it's, I'm just so happy, even though this is something that, you know, shouldn't bring so much joy, but a topic that shouldn't bring so much joy, but I'm just so happy to see how we are starting to come together and more and more people are starting to come forward and really start to share their story and have that sense of freedom to be able to do that and create a community where people can feel safe enough to be able to do that or in spite of feeling, you know, choosing ourselves, choosing ourselves, our recovery and our healing by uh, being free enough to share a story. So I'm just listening to you all, and it's true. When you start talking about, you know, you want to protect the people that you love, you want to protect your parents naturally, you want to protect your family, you don't want to be labeled as the black sheep, the troublemaker, um, like you guys were talking about just a few minutes ago, you know, talking about uh, seeking attention, attention seekers and all of this, being, uh, you know, people will start gaslighting you and, Flipping things on you and try to make you look like you were just again seeking attention and like you're the problem and um, I think that's really horrible and I really I, I can relate to everything you guys are saying so I'm just grateful that this is this is a place where we can talk about it uh, here on Ask on the show today tonight and um, and allow other survivors to know that you know recovery is possible and. All these things are normal. I was talking about our, our experiences, let them know that these things, you know, even though maybe labeled abnormal to the world, us sharing our experiences let us know that, okay, we're not crazy. This is not, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. This is just part of, this is part of the recovery journey, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I appreciate it. I I try to say that a, a, a crime is committed against us. It's not something mm-hmm. that just happened that we didn't like. That's a crime. And we started mm-hmm. making it into crime in the 1970s. For what it's worth. What was that? I'm sorry? It wasn't we a crime until the 70s? It wasn't a crime until the 70s, no. Mm. You, you were happened, allowed to beat your children it, and stuff? Mm-hmm. You could, well, you couldn't be arrested for it. You were allowed to molest your children. You couldn't 
be arrested until the 70s. Wow. And in fact, Washington State know, was the first. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, what state was the first? That was my question. Washington oh, I don't state? know which state was. Washington was the first state to give survivors an extra three years to sue for damages. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And part of this, part of all this, it was the women who went public and claimed that their therapist implanted false memories and they sued their therapist and settled, all of them settled, except for the last one in North Carolina. And that case went to trial and they, the insurance company let it go to trial and that's when they proved that the therapist did nothing. They were totally professional. But I did, mm-hmm. one of the talks I gave was on retractors, on the women who sued. I took the three who were most public. Um, and one, one of them made, one of them settled for over $10 million. And that was three different insurance companies that were involved in that. And what I did was I got copies of their testimony, either their um, testimony before or before or yeah, it was all before. I'm sorry, all before the, any trial because they all settled. And I found that they didn't have much to stand on. In fact, the one who was awarded ten million dollars, she said, she said finally wow. that she didn't implant any false memories in her. Yeah, that's in the book. Yeah, it's amazing. I can't wait to read I, your book. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. Give it to my therapist. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there is one. I just have to warn everyone. There is one really boring chapter, in it, and that's when I take apart the lost animal study. And I kind of warn everybody. It's boring, but it's, like, very, very detailed. And I think that you won't be just read the just read the conclusion. Where I say that um, okay. no false memories were implanted. So um, the thing is that she, what Loftus did was pretty amazing. She came up with a story. She provided the bogus um, credentials for it, and she was never, ever challenged by the media ever. And eventually I found out, I called a society professional journalist, and they say that they do not challenge people with PhDs because they believe they're so smart. So Lotus yeah. was never challenged. Yeah, no. She was never challenged by the media. Yeah. So she was the perfect person to take it public for the parents. Yeah. If, if Pam Pride had done it, no one would believe, well, they they wouldn't believe her because uh, she was accused. But Loftus could do it. Yeah. Wow. And I don't know if you've been uh, listening to the cases of celebrities that she has uh, defended. Um, no. Harvey Weinstein. Um, oh. Giselle. Giselle. Maxwell. Maxwell, yeah. thank you. So there's about five of them, and they were all found guilty. So her false memory uh, defense does not stand up in court. Those all went to trial. They never settled. And she has not 
uh, testified for anyone in over a year now. The media so she's still, still living. The, the person who did all this is still alive and walking the earth and still causing trouble? Yeah, she's still a professor at Irvine University in California. Okay, I could drive over there and talk to her. <laughs> Very close to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, believe me, you would not convince her. Okay. Oh, One right. Thing, uh, okay. Go ahead. The thing I did want to yeah. say is uh, many people who've been through trauma, sexual abuse, they deal with Alzheimer's. You know, they lose their memory at an earlier age. And, and the numbers for people who have dealt with trauma and sexual abuse are very high. For, Is there a uh, survey on that? I'd like to see that. If you could send me information on that, I'd appreciate it. Okay. I definitely will because um, I know my grandmother had Alzheimer's and um. I was doing research around that time because I know she had been through so much trauma, and she would just keep repeating the same story, how she lost her baby. Uh, we're originally from Costa Rica, so you know she um, was telling the story when she was when she first had a couple of her children. They passed away because you know back in the days um, in the area where she lived, there was no like really really clean water and you know all of that. Oh. So there. Was you know, the germs under the um, nipple of the uh, bottle and the babies would die. And she just kept telling the story over and over again. I was like, this is, you know, so sad. But, um, yeah, definitely I'll share it. I sent you a friend request to Miss. Have you taken any surveys of the people that you talked to in your program? Um, I'm trying to think of what uh, did... Uh, what percentage are were molested as kids? Do you know? You talk about for us on the show. Yeah. Hmm. What's your about. thought about that? Uh-huh. Well, what's thought about that, Annie? I mean, we have a lot of people. We we have a lot of survivors of sexual child abuse. You know, a lot of people will come on and they'll share that they went through some type of trauma, and then they'll open up and share. I don't know, it's a lot. What I don't know what percentage it, uh, what percentage it is, but I hear a lot of a lot a lot a lot of people mostly do share that in between with other views. What's your thought about that, Annie? It's not all, but we do have a high percentage. Okay. Yeah. Let's run the numbers. I'm sorry, I was muted and I was talking away. <laughs> um, it, I I do think that um, the, the majority of people we hear on NASCA have been sexually assaulted, um, not just physically or neglect and that kind of thing. The sexual assault is preeminent because it's so common. Yeah. It's a so yeah, don't be too surprised when I tell you that 40 million adults were molested as kids, okay? Yeah. It's just a huge number. It's actually 48 million, but I just say over 40 oh. million. And some people think it's higher than that, higher than 48 million, because um, 
it's so common and it's so easy to do. And people don't believe you're doing it, and they will say, oh, he, I just can't believe the priest would do something like that to a child. So uh, he could walk off with a child hand in hand and molest that child, and no one would know. Anyone in institutions yeah. can do that. Yeah, like I know families okay. in institutions, children are molested in institutions, schools, coaching, um we're just starting to hear about it. I don't think we've heard even half of it. Um, I wanted to share, so I see here, um, and I can share the article with you. It says people who had three or more adverse childhood experiences, physical or psychological abuse, family, psychopathology, or loss of a parent had twice the risk of developing dementia in later years other older adults, even after taking into account economic hardships, demographics, education, nutritional, you know, all of those oh, things. Oh, gee. You that's know, so um, the, yeah, Alzheimer's. And that's what my grandmother had. She had um, dementia, Alzheimer's. Okay. And, um, yeah. But, um, right. That makes me but, angry yeah. because I don't want to have dementia, and it's not fair. Yeah. I have more than three, don't worry. <laughs> I know, and I'm always forgetting. So I'm always like, I, I'm always in school, always trying to read, study, take classes consistently to work my brain. But my memory, I have a hard time remembering stuff. And so I have to work twice, three, four times as hard. And I'm like, oh, my God. Me too. I have to go over and over and have to write things over and over if I want to learn mm-hmm. them. And yeah. and just normal things will just drop out of my brain. Like, what was I just doing? I don't know. Why did I come in this room? I forgot. I hate it. Right. Oh yeah. But yeah. I'm fighting it. Yeah. You keep fighting, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to eat vegetables and I'm trying to exercise every day for my brain. Right. Me yeah. too. Yeah. And you and do a little yoga and all that. Yeah. And I'm taking yeah. supplements. To, to of course. help me live longer. Oh, that's really so, good. For the young people who are listening right now and who are being molested or who were molested, keep yourself in good shape. Get therapy. Keep yourself in okay. good shape. Um, eat, eat well. I've I've had therapy ever since I first recalled it. I haven't done it every week or every. Sometimes I go for a month or so, and this time I'm doing it once once every two months. And I need to keep doing that, uh, as I find when I see the therapist. And this is a depressing time. So many of us are depressed, and you don't want to get depressed because that increases your chances. I just read this of a stroke. Yes. I just read that. Mm. That's true. So... Stay in good shape and, and talk about what happened to you as a child. Find people. Um, yeah. Write a book. Write a book. Write a book about I it. I have a, yeah. a question, Lynn. What year was your book uh, published, please? Last August. Last August. So it's a new book. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. The end of August. So it's Are you going to do an audio book of it? 
I don't know. I just heard an audio of my book. Do you do it yourself? I did it myself. I I went to a professional studio that someone I know knew the person, and um, Mm -hmm. it took me four days to read the book, and it was a very pleasant experience. And then the person did all this work to it, you know, like made different chapters and all the segues you have to do. That was a lot of work. But then I put it on Audible myself. That wasn't too hard. But it was really fun to read the book. I just, I really like that. And I think, you know, there's more people buy it that way. I think you're probably right, yeah. Honestly, I hadn't thought of that. I'll start thinking about it. I think that's a good idea. I also, I know that when, when I was talking to you about my childhood, that, like, when I described the first thing I remembered... It was hard for me to say that, that um, when I talk about the details of what happened, it's hard to talk about. And that's the best I could when I wrote the book. I only did two two, um, memories. I only did two two things that would have been hard to talk about because I didn't want to make it difficult for people to read. I also, when I was writing the book, I did everything I could to make it difficult for people to um, <laughs> sue me for libel. Um, I made it that difficult. I also turned the book into an LLC, which means that mm-hmm. if John Brown decides to sue me, the only thing available to him is the uh, money from the book. He can't sue me personally. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What did you yeah, call that? LLC? LLC. 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 That's like something you do with a lawyer and you become a corporation or something? Um, no. My book is a separate thing from me. Oh. Okay. I'm trying to think of what LLC. Stands for. Limited stands liability. For that's it. Thank Limited you. Limited liability. Yes, that's it. So, if anyone out there plans to write books, do an LLC. It's a pain to do, but it's worth it. I did something it's, like that with my book, but it wasn't an LLC. It was a I don't remember the letters, but it was slightly different from an LLC. But it it made the book and the screenplay of it into its own entity so that I could open a bank account for it and all that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I had lawyers okay, have, yep. to have to do that for me. Okay. Yeah, I did uh, this myself. And I recommend it. Oh, you did, you did the LLC yourself? Yeah. Wow, I'm impressed. And it gave me a headache. <laughs> I, next time, if I were to do it, I would do it, have someone else do it. Yeah. Right. So are and you? What I also, are you doing? 
Are you doing a lot of interviews? Like, are you going around on all the podcasts and all of that to talk about this book? Yes. Yes, I am. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. That's wonderful. It's just and, so important. Um, yeah, someone did an article. Northwest Magazine did an article, and it was a great article. Um, and, I, yeah, I'm doing lots of podcasts. So we'll see what happens. I'm hoping that someone will do um, feature this story someplace. So I'll let you know if that happens. That would be great. Like the New York Times or some really big newspaper like that to cover it. Oh, the New York Times isn't going to do it. I don't oh, think no? so. Because you can oh. kind of tell if a publication is pro or anti child sex abuse. And unless they get... Oh. An occasional article that I, I consider the uh, New York Times pro perp. Wow. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's just so hard to imagine that anybody would be, but you know they are like the the organizations, the big organizations that protected the perps. You know, it's hard to believe, but they yeah. they really do that. People really do yeah. that. It's hard to believe. And so many organizations do that. And I sometimes wonder, in fact, I've asked a couple of people about this, the Catholic Church, did they, they have so many child molesters in that group. Did they make it, did they make it clear? Or did some people kind of knew that if you went into the Catholic Church as a priest that you would get access to children and they wouldn't do anything to you, they just might transfer you? I think they're probably the Catholic Church isn't the only church that um, that has attracted a lot of child monsters. Right. Apparently, so from what we've seen in the news, other other churches and other groups, Boy Scouts, even. Yeah. 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 It's not well, unusual. I'm, to I'm just hoping with all, with all the with all the publicity, like the Boy Scouts in the Catholic Church has had. That it that it is cutting down on the number of children who are being abused because they're not secret anymore, you know? Do you think? No. No. I don't think so. I think that people will be molesting as long as they can. And I think that child molesters are arrogant enough for the most part to think that they are so smart that they can get away with it. Yeah, that's true. They're so clever. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see, unfortunately, but we'll see. I think it's going to take. I once thought that, gee, by the time my grandchildren are adults, this will all be stopped and we won't molest children anymore. Well, the yes. old, my oldest granddaughter is 17, and we're still molesting kids. So I think yeah. it's going to be a while. Maybe when their grandkids are grown. Yeah, yeah. We just got to keep it on everybody's lips. Keep it in front of their eyes. Children are being molested, you guys. You know it's true yeah. because it probably happened to you. You know, I mean, if one out yeah. of five women, it it happens to a lot of people. They should be talking about it. Hopefully, you know, yeah. radio show like this and podcasts and that kind of thing makes it easier for people to talk about because they see other people are talking about it so they can too. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're right. And they can talk about it as a crime. Yep, as a crime, absolutely. 
parents commit crimes against their children. I think that sounds awful. I think it sounds worse than um, parents molest their kids. Parents commit crimes against their children. Yes. Yes. I use the term when I can, the assault, child sexual assault. Molestation yeah. sounds so minor, you know. Like it's okay, it's only molestation, but no, it's assault, a sexual assault, it's rape. Yeah. In many cases, because it is assault. Yeah. yeah. You know, forty percent of all rape victims are under eighteen. Not awful. What does that tell you? The people are just taking advantage of children because they can get away with it, I guess. Because nobody's talking about it. I have a dream that the uh, the child help phone number will be on billboards and in bathrooms and everywhere, so children will see it. That's the one where a kid can call and say, "Hey, somebody's hurting oh, yeah. me." That phone number. I just think it should be everywhere and that every kid can see, oh, look, there's somebody who cares about people like me who are being hurt, you know? Yes. That would be great. That'd be totally great. Yeah. One of my many creative dreams to to do. I, I think I think the Ad Council would do it, you know, the how they put the free ads up on the billboards for people, for different organizations, yeah. like Stop Smoking and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to approach the ad console one of these days. I really am. I really am going to do that and see if they can't put that phone number out there for kids. I would totally support that. Yeah. Yeah, I okay. would totally support I'll work that. harder. Especially given the numbers that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I have why? a question about your – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I would rather hear you. I I wanted to know about your cookbook. What's the oh. name of it, and can we get it on Amazon, and what's it about? Yeah, it's on Amazon, and when it was published, that was about 30 years ago when I was at Baby. Oh. And oh. <laughs> it's called Wine and Dine, and it matches... Uh, the types of different wine with some recipes. And one of the recipes is from Jacques Pétain, because I took a class from him, and it's called Apple Galette. And I made it because I was so in love with it. I made it the night, bef- the night after the class. I brought it to him, and he said, this is better than mine. <laughs> but then he, oh. he um, said, what I did was... This is for the cooks out there, then I'll move on. I, I had the flour in the freezer, so I, so um, it held the butter together, so it was flaky, it was really flaky. So it, in 19, uh, 30 years ago, it cost $1 to publish and mail. Wow. And now I think online it costs $8. It's not, it's not expensive, but there's mm-hmm. some good recipes there. Especially right. the apple garlic. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the sweet okay. jar too. Okay. Do you cook? You know, I don't cook anymore. I did. I was a good cook. But when my second child went away to college, it was, okay, that's enough of my life. 
spent cooking three meals a day. I'm not doing it anymore. And so I quit. Okay. So I eat things like yogurt and cottage cheese, things that you don't have to do anything to. They're already ready. My son cooks. He lives with me, and he cooks. I probably, I'm going to ask a question, but I think it's probably irrelevant. Is someone who was molested as a child more likely to enjoy cooking because it gives them pleasure? It makes them feel good about something they can do. I don't know. That's why it worked for me. I still enjoy cooking, but it just hurts my back now. It's a pleasure because it's creative. I I escaped into cooking as a child because my mother was not a good cook, and I went to junior high summer school cooking class, and I started cooking for a family of eight, and I did it all through high school. And then when I moved wow. out, it was like, how do you cook for one person? Yeah, wow. <laughs> it was a big adjustment. But, yeah, yeah. The, it it was a, a solace to be able to go into the cooking and forget yourself. And forget yourself. That's another thing you're yeah. right. Because I can forget myself because I'm, so, I'm so focused on cooking. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Less other hobbies. I forget myself when I'm gardening, too. I just focus on the plant, you know. Oh. And often, um, that's a form of therapy. You know, when you're cooking, it's very therapeutic. It's like pet therapy, planting, like you were just talking about gardening. All those things are so, it's just, a, it's an art, you know, cooking. It's mm-hmm. a form of art. And so it's, it does take your mind away, and it takes you to a happy place, something that you enjoy doing. I, I mm-hmm. like doing that. Okay. I also like doing art, doing art projects. They take my mind away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kind of art? Um, mainly paper art, uh, cardboard things, painting. I like painting, but not pictures, just painting for color. Mm-hmm. I paint yeah, you all houses. Yeah, you don't have Pardon? Oh. Well, I said I paint doll houses. I co- I collect oh. those doll houses and refurbish them and paint them, and then I put them in my backyard so it looks like a little miniature golf thing out there with all the little <laughs> buildings. That's really oh. cute. Yeah, I, I enjoy that kind of painting. I don't think I could make a picture. Haven't tried that. Okay. Well, we have still seven minutes to go. Just so All right. you know. Any, anything that we didn't bring up yet that you really want people to know? Um, in my book, I don't know the page, you'd have to find it, but I have listed about 15 people associated with 12 Memories, and I quote them all saying, child sex abuse does not harm a child. <laughs> That was one of that was one of the most shocking things. Loftus is one of them. That was one of the most shocking things I just I discovered shocking things during book, but that was one of the most shocking things I discovered that so many people would say that child sex sexual abuse, sexual contact with a child does not harm the child. One of them says, yeah. "Well, if they're young, then they'll just forget about it." No. Yeah. Um, no. 
and there is a transcript in there of uh, Mary Knight, who is interviewing Loftus, and it's the only time I've ever seen Loftus uh, challenged by interviewer. You can find the page. It's amazing mm-hmm. what she does. She's a filmmaker. A film, that's what we need. We need a film to show the false memories are false. You want to write it? I Can you write a, a film out of your book? Can you turn it into it? <laughs> I think that Mary could. I think Mary has done a really good job. Uh, she, yeah. Um, her book, her film title is uh, Am I Crazy? Are My Memories of Child Sex Abuse False? It's something like that. But Mary... Oh, uh, right. Okay. Mary Knight. I'm sorry, Mary Knight. Yes, I'm N-I-G-H-T? actually in that film. Uh, oh. Okay. Right. Am I no, crazy? And what was the Just look at Mary uh-huh. Knight, and you'll find her film. And the first part of it is, Am I Crazy or? Or, okay. She's got I an, will definitely. Yeah, Can check it out. It's, it's online, and it's... It's online and it's cheap. It's free. Online free. So there's like a website where you can see it? Yeah, it's on. Yeah, you'll find it. You'll figure it out. Okay. I definitely will because I do like to see everything that's out there. I want to mention something I saw recently. It was called, oh, now I forgot the name. Shoot. It was a really good movie. Oh, The Wonder. It was called The Wonder. It was a really good movie about child abuse. But it wasn't really about child abuse, but then it was, you know. Really well done, The Wonder. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I love it when people who write books about the experience of child abuse come on, because the more books, the better. I mean, I just want a book on every doorstep so that people will be reading and knowing about this and trying to stop it. And trying to stop it. Yeah, don't don't blow it off if a child tells you that. Or if you suspect, don't blow it off. Right. Um, you could save there is a, You could really save There's them. a brand new book out by Judith Herman. Do you know her? Yes. Okay, she wrote Trauma and Recovery. This, uh-huh. report, this book just arrived today, yesterday. It's called Truth and Repair. I love the subtitle. The subtitle is How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice. Huh. Truth and Repair, Judith Herman. It's got a great review in the New York Times. Wonderful. Sometimes the the New York Times does a good job at Truth and Repair, Judith Herman. Right. Yeah, Judith Herman, she's she's quite renowned in the child abuse writing field. Yeah, she is. She's, yeah, I've read her her um, her first. Book, well, it wasn't her first book. I've um, I've read Trauma and Recovery a few times. Yeah, and this yeah. one I just read um, the first chapter, and I'm underlining so much. Usually, I don't do that. Uh-huh. Yeah, some books just call for it. You just have to get in there yeah, and mark some, them up yeah. and put notes on the yeah, side. I want, I want yeah. To, yeah, I want to pay attention to that. Yeah. Another yeah. author that I like is um, 
is John Sanford. He's a mystery writer. San- and Sanford? Sanford. S-A-N-F-O-R-D. Okay. S-A-N-F-O-R-D. Mm-hmm. He wrote, my favorite book of his is Bad Blood, John Sanford, Bad Blood, because he writes about a cult and where the children are molested and the women are molested. So the two, uh, mother and her two, two children tie up two guys <laughs> and they put them on trial. And John Ooh. Sanford is there to watch the trial. Yeah, I know. And then they find them guilty. And I won't tell you how they punish them. Hmm. But that was amazing to see uh, to see perps put on trial by the victims. It's never it's the first really time. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah, we only totally. have about a minute left on our call, so I'd like to wrap it up by saying thank you to Lynn Crook for being our special guest tonight. Lynn's book is called False Memories, The Deception That Silenced Millions, and it's available on Amazon. And this, the, the Stop Child Abuse Now radio show is on five nights a week at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And so we'll be here again tomorrow, and um, I'll play the music to take us out. Thank you, Lynn Cook. Thank you, Dr. Nancy. Thank you, everyone who listened. I'm Annie Martis. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank Good you. night. Good night. Another tomorrow, because that's gone away.